This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at Kenilworth Castle's Elizabethan Gardens, 10 years since they were recreated. And we're here at one of the best times for the garden. It's a summer garden designed for Elizabeth's pageant, her visit here in July of 1575. We'll find out who originally created them and why. She was very friendly with Robert Dudley, who owned the castle, and she gave him the castle in 1563. They liked riding and they liked dancing, and it was no secret in court circles that Robert Dudley wanted the Queen's hand. And we'll preview the anniversary events happening here in 2019. All that history and horticulture coming up shortly with landscape advisor Emily Parker and garden supervisor Fiona Tanzi. But first, let's plant in your mind what we're covering soon on the English Heritage Podcast. War memorials were erected during the war. First is temporary street shrines. The first one that's recorded was in Hackney in, I think, 1915. Most war memorials are created by local communities, so the cenotaph is fairly unusual in that it's erected by the imperial state. Today, in the modern age, there are many, many different types of jousting, but English Heritage are proud to prevent authentic jousting as it was well researched using records to tell these stories of these rock star knights and how they um, came about to be so popular one of the things i'm fascinated about is archaeoastronomy and this is a fantastic site to see that at work because of the alignment with the summer solstice make sure you listen every thursday to find out more now this week we're at kenilworth castle and elizabethan gardens in the west midlands it's in the historic county of warwickshire which is also the birthplace of William Shakespeare. But, as I'm about to discover, the more you dig, the more history you find. I'm first meeting English Heritage Landscape Advisor Emily Parker, who I happen to bump into, not in the garden, but on a spiral staircase. If you had to sum up Kenilworth Castle today, what might we say about it? To me, it's an extremely grand, reddish, ruin on a vast sort of oval site. Yeah, that seems to sum it up. I mean, it's got beautiful views over the surrounding countryside. It's got a lovely garden. It's, um, but the ruins itself are so dramatic, so atmospheric. And I think that's what visitors usually take away from the site. How far back in history does the site actually go as a settlement? So the first castle was built here in 1120. So in the last 900 years now, there's been a sort of castle on this site. What time period has it sort of almost been frozen in today? Because obviously today we're looking at a lot of ruins and a lot of fallen walls and no roof at all. So the castle was dismantled in the 1650s, so that's kind of what the kind of ruins we see today reflect. But it's been used as a source for poems and paintings ever since as a ruin. But it's kind of in the state we see it today, it's definitely sort of its 1650s after. OK, well let's move out of this um, echoey spot, a narrow spot, and into an open area. I think we're going to go past a group of school children here. (laughs) Hi kids. That's the thing with Kenilworth Castle, we've got lots of school trips I gather. Yeah, I think we have about three or four school group visits a day, so it's quite a busy place. It can be on a weekday. We emerge into an open spot here which is where we can see almost 360 of the entire castle grounds. Let's talk a little bit then about your landscaping work. How long have you been working as a landscaping advisor? Uh, So I've been here as a landscape advisor for nearly six years. And what does that work involve? 
So it's mainly about researching our historic gardens and landscapes that we have in our care and looking how we can conserve them and restore them to the best that they deserve. This is one of the few Elizabethan garden sites that sort of exists in the country at the moment to visit. So it's a lovely example of that kind of style of garden that you perhaps don't see anywhere else. Before we get to see the Elizabethan gardens, Emily shows me what else the castle has to offer. Now we've just emerged onto a grassed area, which mm. is the centre, I would say, of the entire castle grounds. We're surrounded by all this red brick and these ruins behind us as well, and a few remains of former buildings which are now only about a few feet high. What are we standing in right now? So we're standing in the sort of inner court of the castle. So this is where sort of all the kind of hubbub of daily castle life would have taken place. So people scurrying around, going between the kitchens and the main buildings, and obviously sort of the more higher class people would probably have walked around inside. This is where the kind of nitty gritty of, of castle life would have taken place. And what building were you looking at right here to our diagonal right? So we're looking at Leicester's building, which was built in sort of the late 1560s, early 1570s to kind of provide a place for Elizabeth the first stay when she visited here on one of her royal progresses. So it's a building built fit for a queen essentially, so it has all the kind of rooms and accompaniments and grand large windows for her to be able to view the countryside around it. What's the story behind the ruin of Kenilworth Castle? So Kenilworth Castle was ruined after the Civil War, so in the 1650s it was deliberately dismantled so it couldn't be a seat of power in the local region. So it was deliberately kind of taken down and used in local buildings to make it sort of so it couldn't become that kind of large seat of power again. Well let's have a look at the kind of opulence perhaps and we'll try and imagine what Queen Elizabeth I would have enjoyed when she stayed here. So which way do we go now? Let's go up here. We cross the grassy inner court and head towards Leicester's Tower, where we face a long climb to where Queen Elizabeth I would have stayed. There are a lot of steps in the ruins because obviously English heritage has had to connect these various rooms and buildings. So it's about putting steps back where they've been lost essentially so we're kind of reconnecting spaces hopefully in the kind of like historically how they would have been travelled through. But to our right I can see a doorway and there are some very modern steps with what looks like wooden and chrome balustrades and that would take us up to I presume where the Queen would have stayed. Yes so if you'd come here about five years ago you wouldn't have been able to access the kind of state apartments in the same way you can today. So about five years ago we had we put these new stairs in so you can kind of go up and experience the tower how Elizabeth would have seen it, seen the views that she would have seen and look out across and kind of get kind of the opulence of some of those rooms where the fireplaces survive and the big windows still exist. So you can kind of start seeing it how she would have seen it which I think is quite powerful on a site like this which is quite ruined. Okay well let's see if we can go through this doorway then and try and imagine what we would have seen through regal eyes. I think a school party has gone up ahead in front of us, but I think uh, that's what you get when you come to Kenilworth Castle. Yeah, Lots of education. very alive as well, which is quite nice. And you can kind of get a sense of that hub of how busy it would have been in medieval times when today as visitors perhaps don't experience that as much. That's true, that's true. Still very much an active castle today in that sense. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I think it, it, you know, it's lovely to have the school kids here to bring it to life a little bit. We've come up a set of stairs. So we are now very, very high, actually, compared to where we were before. If I look down now, I can see a pigeon on a ledge. And <laughs> below that, well, it must be at least a 40 or 50 foot drop. And we're not at the highest point yet. <laughs> if you haven't got a head for heights, perhaps... This area is not an area for you to visit. So we're in the Queen's outer chamber right now. This is the first room of the Queen's most private apartments, according to this 
board that we're looking at. So in the 16th century, this is kind of the start of her kind of state rooms and where she'd have entertained her guests and sort of had people to visit her when she was staying. All right, well, let's continue our journey around. We turn the corner and do we go up another set of stairs? So that's two turns already. Another set of stairs and we're slowly emerging at the top. So we are now standing in Leicester's building and the Great Tower. I need to catch my breath. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you. We did quite a lot of steps then, didn't we? And we are quite high up now. I'd say it's got to be close to 70 to 80 feet, I'd maybe say. even more. And we're kind of above most of the other buildings on the site now, which is quite nice. Yes, and you can see it's also a haven for wildlife. We've got some birds nesting and just watching what's going on from these elevated viewpoints. Mm, yes. I asked Emily how Kenilworth Castle became a once palatial residence. What was the purpose of aggrandising Kenilworth Castle? So this building was built specifically for the visits of Queen Elizabeth I when she came here on her royal progresses. So she came here particularly because she was very friendly with Robert Dudley who owned the castle and she gave him the castle in 1563. So it was kind of coming back to visit what she'd given him as a gift. And how did they meet? Did they know each other from a young age? So they knew each other in court circles particularly and they had similar interests so they liked riding and they liked dancing and it was no secret in court circles that Robert Dudley wanted the Queen's hand and her visit to Kenilworth here in 1575 which lasted 19 days it was the longest she'd ever stayed at the courtier's house although that that was the talk of the town in the time she never came back so that was her last visit here in 1575. That's so sad so in a way was this built because he loves her and he wanted to marry her? It was definitely to try and show off his strength and power and wealth to her and the royal court. So he was showing that he could build beautiful buildings, he had the royal patronage that she would come and visit him. And of course we have the Elizabethan Gardens here today, mm. which have been here for the last 10 years and that's the reason why we come to visit. So shall we continue to those Elizabethan Gardens yeah, and make the long journey back down <laughs> these steps? Yes. Emily takes me from the highest point in the castle back down several flights of steps, across the grassy inner court, and then out towards the northern side of the grounds. So we've just come through an archway and we are at the Queen's Privy Garden entrance. So this is kind of the grand reveal of the garden. This is where you can see it from above, you can see some of the intricate planning of the planting beds, and you can see right through the centre with the kind of fountain and the aviary at the end. So this is kind of the grand reveal of this Elizabethan garden today. These kind of like sort of what they would have called historically sort of quarters are the kind of sections of the garden which all have kind of quite a similar feel. So they're kind of surrounded by this kind of fence and hedge scenario and each of them have like geometric beds inside. These were called knots in the Elizabethan period, so they had a specific name for this kind of planting. And through them you can kind of see a mix of the kind of flowers, but also some kind of sculptural planting in the kind of little bits of hedges and little trees. So they're kind of creating a height as well. And in the centre of each of these, these obelisks, they are meant to look like sort of kind of rare Egyptian stone, but actually painted wood. And that's how we historically think they were as well. So it's all just a conceit to show that you had looked like you had lots of money. The only people who would have come into this kind of garden are Elizabeth and her very close courtiers. So from a distance, if it looks like rare of Egyptian stone, that's all that matters, because only anyone else is only ever going to see it from a distance. 
Um, the only reason we know so much about the garden and we're able to recreate it today is because of someone, one of her um, members of staff snuck into the garden during her visit in 1575. And it's that description that is what we have been able to use to recreate the garden as it is today. So had it not been for that naughty person getting in, yep. we wouldn't really know what it looked like. No, and it's interesting because the person who snuck in was a mercer. So his whole way he worked was based on sort of measuring things and being exact about how he described things. So he could provide quite a good description of how it looked. So he provided measurements for things like the aviary and then all the fountain. And then when we did the archaeology, we could then trace those measurements on the ground, for the fountain at least, to show that those measurements were pretty good. You mentioned a mercer there, Emily. Obviously that's a surname. There are lots of surnames that we've had passed on through history, like Smith, Baker, Taylor. What does a mercer do? So a mercer is someone who trades in sort of cloth. So he would have known how long six foot looked, for example, because he would be used to sort of seeing these kind of measurements. OK, well, looking back at the garden again, can you tell me when they were first installed, these gardens? We think they were installed in the late 1560s, early 1570s, probably more likely in the 1570s when we knew that Elizabeth was coming for her royal progresses. And that's the Earl of Leicester? Yes, yeah, so Robert Dudley would have built these to kind of, as part of his grandising of kind of castle. Alongside all the work he was doing, including building a new building for Elizabeth, he would have built these kind of gardens to kind of show off how much in fashion he was, how much he knew about gardening, because these are kind of the latest taste in gardening as well. So it's kind of getting ideas from the continent, bringing those ideas here, and he would have laid it out as a kind of unique and private space for the Queen to use. OK, well, let's get a little bit closer to the gardens themselves. We'll head down the steps. We've got a couple of symbols of Warwickshire here. Yes. With the bears. So we're standing on the terrace now, which is kind of a viewing point to be able to view across the garden. So 10 years ago, this terrace wasn't here. And this was one of the things that was recreated as part of that description by Robert Langham, the mercer. So he described the bear and ragged staff motif, which is Robert Dudley's motif. And that's, we've got a couple of, um, of these bears yes. to, to our left and right at the bottom of the steps. They're about two feet tall. And there's also these balls and obelisks, which Langham also described in his letter. And they were also meant to look like stone, but actually painted wood, probably. I mean, they could have been stone, but we imagine they were probably more likely to have been painted wood. Now that we've got a little bit closer, we're on this terrace area. How close a representation are these gardens of what would have existed in that period? We used a lot of sources to recreate these gardens. So we used Robert Langham's letter, which is very precise. We used archaeological investigations to kind of try and fill in some of those details as well. There isn't any paintings or drawings of the garden in the 16th century, but by the early 17th century, there is one showing the fountains still existing. So we used that. And then there's also quite a lot of detailed work into, went into other gardens that existed at the time. For example, there was no evidence of what the planting bed layout was, but we could use other designs from the time to kind of match that in to show we know what space it's got so we know what kind of design they would have been using, so we can find that in a pattern book for gardening at the time. You're not saying this is the garden, you're saying this is an Elizabethan garden that could have existed at this time and is based on the best evidence that we've got. Next, Emily hands me over to the woman in charge of keeping the gardens both accurate and immaculate. My name's Fiona Tanzi and uh, I'm the garden supervisor at Kenilworth Castle and I've been working here for 11 years. So Fiona, we're standing in the centre of the Elizabethan garden, right by the glorious fountain that's been installed. Now this is a new addition, isn't it? It, it looks marble to me. It's got dark grey 
and white. And there's lots of figurines seem to have been carved in as well. What are we looking at? Yes, this is a new fountain, but it is based on the very accurate description we have of the fountain that was here in 1575. So what we're looking at now is an octagonal-based bowl made of Carrera marble. The friezes on the eight sides are of Ovid's metamorphoses. There's a large plinth with two large atlants reaching around uh, 18 foot tall and the water cascades from the top of the, the ball on their shoulders. And who are the characters standing on the plinth with the ball on their shoulders? Well, they're facing east and west. We just know them as atlants or athletes. Uh, and uh, they would have been carved here in England, as this one has been, but based on Roman and Greek statues that were still to be found in Europe at the time. So how does your Elizabethan garden grow? Hopefully with lots of water, like what we're standing next to. And it has been raining today, but thankfully the sun is starting to come through a bit now. Yes, and, and we're here at one of the best times for the garden. It's a summer garden designed for Elizabeth's pageant, her visit here in July of 1575. So from, let's say, late April until the end of August, there's very much a flower garden emphasis. Let's look at some of the flowers you just mentioned there then, shall we? Um, which way should we go from here, left or right? Well, let's go left. Let's go this way. Okay. There are, the garden's made up of four quarters, and the quarters are a mirror, mirror image of each other. So these two quarters that we're looking at here line up exactly with those two over there. So when it's viewed from above, from the keep or from the terrace, the symmetry is what people are looking for. We should mention that, of course, the castle is still very much a feature of the garden in a way because it's just adjacent with that terrace there and then it looms up yes, um, that's this right. red monument. It was described as being hard up against the keep. So when we rebuilt this terrace, which, which had disappeared over the years, we put it straight right up against the beautiful Norman keep here and we know that Dudley extended the keep to this lovely Elizabethan loggia and so a natural entrance would be down those steps to see the garden laid out in front of you. It's a bit like going through a tunnel and then suddenly emerging out of the tunnel into a little yes. bit of paradise. That's right. It would have been quite dark in the keep and then to come out into this lovely garden would have been quite special. So they've really staged managed it quite well, or at least the Earl has. Yes, well he knew what he was doing definitely. He had a very good eye. We know that from some of the inventories in the gatehouse, his beautiful tapestries, he was a great collector of things. And so for him to have this beautiful garden is actually not so much of a surprise. Let's touch on that beauty then. We were going to go and look at some flowers, but we, yes. got, we got distracted by all those other things. Well, the roses are just coming out at the moment. These are beautiful, old-fashioned roses. Rose of Provence, the damask rose, and uh, if you do smell them, th this scent really rises up, especially on a day when we've had some rain. Now the sun's coming out. You'll get this fantastic scent. And um, these are sort of lilac-y kind of colours? Yes, pink. We, these are sort of a pinky lilac. We also have the very dark red of the uh, damask rose. And the rose colours vary from the dark red through the lilacs and the, and the pale pinks. What else have we got behind us here? There seems to be what looks like a purpley plant. It almost looks this well, kind of colour that, of beetroot. <laughs> this is an amaranth and this is an example of a plant that was very, very modern at the time in 1575. These actually come from the West Indies and so for Dudley to have had seed or plants of these grown in his garden showed that he had enough money and enough influence for actually to, to actually get the seed here in the first place. And so these were the absolute pinnacle of modernity in any garden 
at the time. So having the newest thing from the farthest flung places was yeah. a great way to show your wealth. And That's right. And the same goes for the marigolds. They come from Mexico. Mexico being in the New World, the seeds came up through mainland Europe. They were used in the dyeing trade, the cloth dyeing trade, eventually came and entered it into England where we use them for beautiful flowers in the garden. What are these red flowers, these tall ones towards the centre of this the is, garden? This uh, is lichness here. and also known as Maltese cross. Lichness? Yes. What do they smell like? They don't actually have much of a smell, we just check that. But they attract the bees, as you can see. And Got one uh, there flying around that's now. right. And uh, and these would have been used because they're nice and tall and they're very bright, they would have just been used as an ornamental. And they do emerge over some of the other plants as well, so they really that's shoot right. up and sort of show off. Yes, they do, yes. What's in the centre there? We have a very interesting shaped shrub. Well that's has that been uh, cut. It's yes, it has. Probably about what, five feet tall? And it almost looks like one very large lorry tire and then a car sized tire and then what looks like almost like a basketball size on, on the top and it's all just made out of green leaves. Yes, that's a cornice mass and you'll see in some of the evergreens and some of the larger shrubs have been cut into a topiary shape and this is just a very basic topiary shape usually called a wedding cake, something like that. So yes, two discs and a ball on the top. Cornice mass is a lovely plant actually, has beautiful very early yellow flowers in February so a lovely splash of colour and then it produces a lovely little cherry type fruit which can be used to make jams and things. Oh, so it's got a dual purpose? It has, this, that one has, yeah. Good to look at and taste nice. That's right. We've got the aviary as well mm -hmm. to the left hand side. This is on the outside of the perimeter of the, of the gardens. Yes, it would have been built originally into the castle wall. Stone built aviary, as you can see there, stone and wood, built into the wall However, the wall itself is gone now. So we are representing the wall with the beech hedge and the aviary was built just over 10 years ago. And again, it replicates the description that we have of the original aviary. And it's got Tudor roses in each corner That's right. above these wooden columns. And also, the, can you see the large fake jewels as well? Yes, it all different colours. described as being bejeweled with um, diamonds, emeralds and rubies and sapphires. In the 1600s? Yes. Real ones? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, it, it was described at the time as being bejeweled, but then he did go on to say that they were fake jewels. So we have represented them with very large fake jewels at the top. Plenty of colour then. That's right. Yeah. We've got uh, blue, diamond colour, I guess, ruby, red, and, and green emeralds. Green emerald. Yeah. yeah, and then that's replicated all the way around. Yes. There's also the gold lettering. That's R right. and L. Yes, Robert of Leicester. He had been made the Earl of Leicester. He was very proud of that because he was not uh, born into a noble family as such. He was of the aristocracy, but there was no nobility there. His father was made a duke and he was made the Earl of Leicester and he was very proud of that. Is this an accurate representation of what the Queen would have seen when she was promenading? <clears throat> with the Earl of Leicester around these gardens yes, and having yeah. interesting discussions? I think so, yes. The Avery 
itself it was described as being exactly this long, this wide and this high with these arches and the birds inside as well. However, we haven't quite gone to town on the birds as described because um, we still have to <laughs> adhere to modern health and safety. But the birds, you can hear. Can I, think you hear that, them? I think they heard you when you said yes. you didn't go to town. <laughs> so I think they may be looking for some more friends. But what ones do we have? These are lizard canaries. And they are the, a wonderful little bird. It's the original canary that was found on the Canary Islands, brought back by sailors for their beautiful song. Very common as a, a sort of a rich man's or rich lady's pet. And uh, we've got a lovely flock in, of about 25 in there. And uh, they have this wonderful song. You can just hear, just, uh, hear them now. It's lovely. They're almost the size of maybe blue tits, maybe a bit smaller. Mm -hmm. And they've got this sort of light yellow colour. Yes, yellows, browns and greens. And uh, the darker ones are, are described as, you know, as the lizard canary because they, their feathers look a little bit like scales. But this is the original type of canary which is then bred and bred and bred by the Victorians. You could stand here for, for hours, couldn't <laughs> yeah. you, and just enjoy, very relaxing, enjoy yes. the sounds. That's right. So how much work goes into a garden like this? It's pretty big as we walk around it. In total, it's about an acre just less probably. There are 96 raised beds, if you counted all the quarters together. And yeah, it's, it's a full-time job, certainly, keeping everything planted, weeded, deadheaded. We get uh, winter and summer bedding. I replace various plants every now and then. Sometimes if I have to replace something like the wild strawberries, for instance, that go around the edges of the beds, that's three and a half thousand plants if, if I decided to do that so you know wow. it takes more than a couple of days to put those in. And a 365 day a year job really. Yes that's right yeah there's always something to do even if it's just perhaps mulching in the winter or weeding in the summer there's always something going on. Garden supervisor Fiona and I then rejoin landscape advisor Emily to find out about some other plans they're preparing for. Okay, so we're back with Emily now, and we found a bench to sit on as well. And uh, it's good to have a bench to sit on after all the walking, because this is a very, very big castle and grounds. But uh, what, what have we got coming up at the castle over the next few months? I understand that there's a, quite a big celebration to coincide with 19 days of Queen Elizabeth I's visit way back in the past. Yes, we're having a weekend Elizabethan pageant, which will involve fantastic things like uh, music, dressing up. Dudley himself will be here and the Queen of course arriving in state. There'll also be falconry displays and uh, some, some great things going on. Of course another reason we're here today is for the 10-year anniversary of the recreation of the Elizabethan Gardens. So yes 10 years ago in 2009 these gardens were recreated into the glory that you see today. Um, so as part of that we're having a bit of a sort of refresh and revamp of some of the planting and some of the uh, paintwork in the garden so it should all look quite sprightly again. That's right, and uh, just one new element to add to that is that we are putting in the gardener's gate, which was mentioned in Laynham's letter, and quite a, uh, an interesting part of the letter was that he was let in to the garden by Adrian, the French gardener, and through this wonderful gate, and so we are putting the gate in, so it will enable other people to let themselves in to this lovely privy garden. As we sit here and take in the view of Kenilworth Castle, the Avery, the garden, what do you think Queen Elizabeth I would have made of your Elizabethan garden and what you've been working on for the last 10 years? 
Well, hopefully the garden itself won't look too different. We know that uh, we've great research done on the plants and the layout of the garden itself, so I'm sure that she would think the garden was fantastic. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about Kenilworth Castle and upcoming events taking place here, head to the English Heritage website. We're back next week, tracing the history of the Cenotaph, a hundred years after it was created for the Peace Day Parade of July 1919, following the end of World War I. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to review us and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.